Oh, hey, Internet. Welcome to the Intoxicated Podcast, a weekly unfiltered comedy podcast that dives into the personal lives of comedians, experts, influencers, and creators. Every week, I aim to find out who these people really are, what makes them mad, what makes them happy, what life experiences have shaped them, and what challenges have they faced along the way. Intoxicated aims to bring you backstage to uncover hidden insights into the people behind the performance, unapologetically and unfiltered. It's the podcast where too much information is just the right amount. I am your host, Sarah McClellan, a very amateur stand-up comedian and self-proclaimed sad girl. I started this podcast after realizing how deep conversations with others can help you understand yourself, other people, and the world. Whether it's sharing ridiculous stories or diving deep into topics like mental health, sexuality, and relationships, there is no small talk on this podcast. Just raw and honest conversations with creative and open people who own their pain and are able to laugh through it. It's a comedy podcast with lots of heart. Join me every Friday to be a fly on the wall for some epic heart-to-hearts. Remember to feel hard and talk hard. This is The Intoxicated Podcast. How do I start? Like, hi everyone. Hi everyone. Hi everyone. Welcome back to the Minute Women Podcast. My name is Grace. I'm gonna say I'm Linnea. And I'm Linnea. And I'm Linnea. I literally was Every like, Every time. What do I say? <laughs> I smell burnt toast. Dr. I smell burnt toast. I need my baskets back. He'll need his baskets back. <laughs> I dragged my ass out of bed for this picture. <laughs> On Mondays, it's gonna be Margarita Mondays. <laughs> Nationwide. <laughs> and feel that reciprocated enjoyment. enjoyment. Oh, oh my god! It's like we're friends or something. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Minute Women Podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And we are here for part two of the Lucy Maud Montgomery story. I must say, this is quite the epic. It is. Quite the saga. I'm surprised no one's like made a has someone made a movie about her life? I don't know, but she's like Canadian, so probably not. <laughs> maybe that's what we'll do. Maybe. We're gonna well maybe the minute women will venture into filmmaking <laughs> and we'll make some really bad, smutty movies. Really bad and really <laughs> about smutty. Canadian history. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. So when we left off, mm-hmm. Lucy is in a very unhappy marriage. Extremely unhappy. With her husband, Ewan McDonald. Yeah. She's a very successful author, on the other hand. Yes. So we have kind of this really big polarization between her personal life and her professional life. Yes. She has two sons that she loves very, very much. And globally, they've just gone through the First World War. Yeah. And they've just gone through the Spanish flu pandemic, which Lucy comes down with Spanish influenza. And her friend at one died. Point. And her best friend died yeah. of Spanish influenza, Frederica. So. Oh, and now she wants a divorce. And she considered a divorce from her husband. But it's not because she doesn't want a divorce. It's because she thinks that it's her Christian duty to like make the marriage work. Yeah. Which is only hurting yourself, Lucy. Wise words to all our uh, pals out there listening to this podcast. Don't do that. (laughs) God will love you either way. Yeah. 
just you know try to try to live a happy life part of what's been going on is the fact that her husband has really been impacted by the first world war and he feels a lot of guilt for preaching early on to encourage men to go to war and then they go and they die and he feels really awful about this so her husband, who's a good Calvinist, and Calvinists believe in predestination, which is basically that you don't go to heaven because you do good things. You do good things because God has chosen you to go to heaven. Oh. Like, it's like it's predetermined. It's it's not like currency where you can do good things and like earn favor with God. Yeah, not like the Mormons. Um, yeah, not like most other sects yeah. of yeah. Christianity, uh, including Mormons, I believe. Yeah. Mormons, um, it's just like, it's like levels. Like, you get, like... Right, yeah. Like, <laughs> up top, like, heaven. You get upgrades. Mediocre heaven. Yeah. <laughs> pretty lame heaven. Or hell. <laughs> From what I understand. And I will say, there are... There's a fairly, I would say, um, thriving Mormon population in the Lunenburg area. And, uh, yes, never met a Mormon that I didn't, like... Knock on wood. <laughs> They're very so polite far. people. Yeah. You know, no, you know, if you stay away from, from, you know, drinking drugs and gambling, like, you can turn out great. <laughs> <laughs> You're the new commercial, their new billboard for joining the Mormon church. <laughs> but anyways, so Ewan, he believes in predestination, but he's coming to think that he and his family are not part of the elect. <laughs> He's like looking around and he's like, wow, there's a lot of bad shit going on to our family. I don't think God likes us. <laughs> and so this would lead him to spend hours depressed staring into space. <laughs> because that's the thing. There's nothing you can do about no. it. Once you believe that you are not part of the elect, you're like, well, there's no point to anything anymore. Oh gosh, yeah. Calvinism doesn't really motivate you to do a lot of stuff. No. Oh, man. Like, the, at, like, let me just say, the access today that we have for, like, mental health, like, assistance and, like, you know, there's health yeah. lines and, and, you know, access to doctors and medication and, like, God bless because that sounds Yeah, it's awful. crazy. It is kind of crazy where you, like, look at how much, like, mental health must have impacted the past, but you just have no real document record of it because there's no language for it so you're just like oh this person is just like sad all the time yeah versus like oh this person clearly has some like depressive issues and could could use some help Oh, people came back from the war and they're like really messed up like weird that's weird (laughs) like (laughs) i hope they get over that anyway anyways So the reverend would often tell his wife that he wished she and their children were never born because they're not part of the elect and all of them were going to hell when they died and he believed that they were all predestined to be damned. Uh-oh. It's just like, good morning. It's, it's literally, I mean, you know the, the meme of Kanye? Yes. When they're outside his house at four in the morning, it's like, good morning, Kanye. Yeah. And Kanye's like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. That is the reverend every single morning because there's no point in waking up. <laughs> He refused to assist with raising the children or doing any housework. What a dick. Because he's like, there's no point. 
And he was given over to erratic, reckless driving as if he was deliberately trying to kill himself in a car crash. Because he was. Because he probably <laughs> was and, and suicide is a sin. Yeah. So he can't. Yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. That's, that's really bad. <laughs> Lucy herself was driven to depression by her husband's conduct. And she often wrote that she'd wish she'd married someone else. Lucy wrote in her diary that she could not stand looking at her husband's face when he had that horrible, imbecile expression on his face as he stared blankly into space for hours. Oh, man. And see this, this here, this story. If we learn nothing from this story, it's why divorce can be a really good thing. Like, <laughs> Yes. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, I guess I get it when you have some sort of religious belief about it. Not to say that I agree with that, but I'm like, okay, I understand your rationale and your logic. But people today who are not religious, who don't have those like higher beliefs about marriage, but are like, well, you know, like da 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 da. It's like, no, you you're making each other miserable. You're not bad people for wanting a divorce. And for her to be like, oh, like it's my good Christian duty because I'm a woman and like I need to be a good Christian woman and like take care of this household. Like, no. But alas. Here we are. So Lucy regularly gets fan mail from various people. She gets a lot of fan mail from young girls because that's who reads her books. I'm going to say that Lucy's not a great person to communicate with young girls. They have a very particular image of what Lucy is like. And she's nothing like Anne in the sense that she's not, you know, like happy all the time. So in February of 1920, Lucy wrote in her diary that she got a letter from, quote, some pathetic 10-year-old in New York who implores me to send her my photo because she lies awake at night in bed wondering what I look like. Well, if she had a picture of me in my old dress resting with the furniture this morning, cussing the ashes and the clinkers, she would die of disillusionment. However, I shall send her a reprint of my last photo in which I sat in a rapt inspiration, apparently, at my desk, with a pen in hand in a gown of lace and silk, with my hair just so. Amen. A quite passable woman, of no kin whatever to the dusty, ash-covered Cinderella of the furnace cellar that I am today. So, like, I sense some attitude. She's, you know, it, it, it just sounds like... The thing that you did want from when you were a kid, which was to like write books and be famous, it's not making you happy. Yeah. So she's, you know, she's not doing great. She's not doing so hot during this period of time. She's often reflecting like, I should have married Herman. I wish Freddie was still alive, which is what she would call her her friend Frederica, who died of Spanish flu. In retrospect, a lot of people believe that she was suffering from spells of depression yeah. And she also suffered from migraine headaches that she interprets as the, her suppressed romantic passions and also Leard's ghost haunting her. I don't know if she means that literally or if she means like the ghosts of her past coming to haunt her. Um, but I like she gets so worked up emotionally that she gives herself these like massive migraine headaches. So during this period of time, This is the other thing going on in her life, which also would bring on a lot of stress, I can imagine. But I could also see her funneling a lot of negative emotions into this, which might be a good thing. During this period of time, starting in 1917, Lucy was engaged in five bitter, costly and burdensome lawsuits with Louis Coe's 
Page, who was the owner of the L.C. Page and Company publishing house. Okay. Um, that, con- that she continued until 1928. Okay. Page, who's the publisher has a really well-deserved reputation as one of the most tyrannical figures in American publishing, a bully with a ferocious temper who signed his authors to exploitative contracts and liked to humiliate his subordinates, including his his mild-mannered younger brother, who was his partner, and he would regularly do that in public. So you basically have like a comic book villain in her life at this point. That sounds... (laughs) horrible he sounds awful I don't like him (laughs) and it sounds like exactly the type of person Lucy would have absolutely no time for so Lucy received seven cents on the dollar which is not very much uh for the sale of every one of her Anne books instead of the 19 cents on the dollar that she was entitled to which led her to switch publishers in 1917 when she finally discovered that Paige was cheating her out of all this money so For a long time, she's thinking that she's receiving these 19 cents on the dollar. In reality, she's only receiving 7 cents, which is crazy. Um, But also indicates just how successful these books were because she was quite like financially stable and successful due to her literature. So when Lucy left the firm of L.C. Page and Company, Page demanded she sign over the American rights to one of the books, um, one of the Anne books called Anne's House of Dreams. And when she refused, he cut off the royalties from all of her earlier Anne books. That's so fucking illegal. Yes, very much so. So he's basically like blackmailing her um, and then following through on that blackmail. Even though he did not own the U.S. rights to Anne's House of Dreams, Page sold those rights to the disreputable publishing house of Grosset and Dumlap as a way of creating more pressure on Lucy to capitulate. Instead, Lucy sued Grosset and Dumlap. Page was counting on the fact that he was a millionaire and Lucy was not, and that the prospect of having to spend thousands of dollars in legal fees would force her to give in. So that's basically how he wins all of his legal disputes, is he's just like, I'm willing to go to to court and I have more money, so you don't have the money. That means I can strong arm you into doing whatever I want. Much to Page's surprise, however... Lucy did not back down due to the legal fees. Instead, Lucy hired a lawyer in Boston and sued Page in Massachusetts Court of Equity for illegally withholding royalties that were due to her and for selling the U.S. rights to Anne's House of Dreams, which he did not possess. Good for her. Did she win? We'll, we'll get to okay. it. We'll get All right. to I'm it. Sorry. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just no, like, okay. that sounds really badass. <laughs> so. So meanwhile, while all of that's happening, so this court case goes on for years and years and years. As they do. Um, and it's always, it's always in the background of everything. In 1920, the house where Lucy grew up in Cavendish was torn down by her uncle, who complained that too many tourists were coming to see the property. Um, that inspired the house in which Anne grew up in. Yeah. So that's the thing. Like, there is there's a Parks Canada site where you can go yeah, and visit, it. like, Anne's house, yeah. which is funny because it's – no one ever lived there. And Anne's but it's not a, a real person. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not a real person but like there was a house once that was like the model for the house that Anne grows up in Aww. and that one got torn down so which is kind of sad. sad i hate that yeah and it's torn down because people are going to visit it yeah. <laughs> it's like what a like curmudgeon thing to Idiot. do Lucy was very sentimental about the house and the news of its destru- destruction caused her great pain 
Um, but between May and July of that year, Lucy had to be in Boston so she could attend the court cases or the court sessions with Paige, who taunted her by telling her that the Ann books were still selling well, making him millions. Oh, what a jerk. In 1920, Lucy was infuriated uh, when there was a 1919 film version of Anne of Green Gables, where they changed Anne from being Canadian to an American, (gasps) which I've never seen that. I've never, I didn't know that there was that early, like, film version of Anne of Green Gables. She wrote in her diary, it was a pretty little play, well photographed, but I think if I hadn't already known it was from my book, I never would have been able to recognize it. The landscape and the folks were in New England, never P.E. Island. A skunk and an American flag were introduced, both equally unknown to P.E. Island. I could have shrieked with rage over the latter. Such a crass, blatant Yankeeism. <laughs> but I, was, I love, like, does Anne have a skunk sidekick? Right? Like, what in does the she movie? mean? Yeah, what does that mean? What does she mean? <laughs> what is a skunk? If not a skunk. Like, even worse, journalists were reporting that the Anne of Green Gable books were written by a Mr. Montgomery. Oh, no. <laughs> instead of her. And it's only mentioned in like passing lines that this was like what had inspired the book. Oh, uh, yeah. Or, it, sorry, inspired the movie. Yeah. Lucy had no say in the 1919 version, nor did she have any say in the 1934 version of the Anne of Green Gables movie. Um, As the publisher, Elsie Page had acquired the film rights to the story in 1908, and therefore all of the royalties were paid by by Hollywood for both versions to the Page Company instead of Lucy. So she doesn't own any of the film rights to her own books, which is really shitty. It's also would be really hard to predict that. Like, yeah, films aren't regularly made during that period of time. Right. So Lucy stopped writing about Anne in about 1920. So around the time of these lawsuits, um, writing in her journal that she was just tired of the character. She felt like she had nothing else to say. Right. But you have to imagine that this lawsuit would make you extremely tired. And frustrated. <laughs> By February of 1921, Lucy estimates that she had made about $100,000 from the sales of her Anne books while declaring her in her diary, it's a pity it doesn't buy you happiness. She preferred to create books about other young female characters, feeling that her strength was writing about characters who were either very young or very old. She's very sad, and she's very sad. (laughs) she's sad i know i know but like you can see it in the am books where like basically everyone in the books are young children or her adoptive parents who are quite old other series written by lucy include emily and pat books which while successful did not reach the same levels of public acceptance as the Anne volumes did yeah she also wrote a number of standalone novels, which were also generally successful, but not as successful as her Anne books. Right. So it's in 1921 that she starts writing Emily of New Moon, and she planned to replace Anne with Emily as like the star of her next series of novels. Okay. And like I mentioned before, that character is semi-autobiographical. Um, it's, it's based, Emily is closer to Lucy than Anne is. Oh, for sure. Emily is much darker and sad. Like, that girl is depressed. Yeah. 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 
1925, a Massachusetts court ruled in favor of Lucy against her publisher. Hell yes. Okay. So she wins She wins the court Some cases. good friggin' it was, news. <laughs> yeah, we finally have a high okay. point. All right. As the judge found that Paige had systematically cheated her out of profits from the Ann books dating back to 1908. Yes. Paige used every conceivable excuse to avoid paying Lucy what he owed her. And after his brother George died of a heart attack in 1927, he accused Lucy of causing his brother's death by suing him for her rightful shares of the royalties. That's such bullshit. Also, you killed your brother. You're the yeah. one who bullies him in public You're all the time. You're a psycho. Like, stop. <sighs> in October of 1928, Lucy finally won, while Paige, a sore loser to the end, continued to insist in public that she had caused the death of his brother, which he used as a reason why he should not have to pay Lucy anything. Paige waged a campaign of harassment against Lucy, sending her telegrams accusing her of causing his brother's death and the subsequent mental breakdown of his widow by defeating him in court, asking her if she was pleased with what she had allegedly done. And was she like, yep? (laughs) It's like, yeah, just own it. It's like, yeah, I did it. (laughs) Arsenic in the mouth. (laughs) Yes. Arsenic in the mouth. Yeah. However... These all do have ramifications because Page's behavior badly damaged his business as no author chose to publish with a publisher who had revealed himself to be both dishonest and vindictive. And after the 1920s, Page's publishing house largely depended on reissuing older books rather than issuing new books as authors took their business elsewhere. So this is kind of the end of the publishing house. She achieved his demise. I love it. Yeah, Lucy through passive, you know, like actively resisting, but never giving in, ruins this publishing house. On November 7th, 1928, Lucy finally received a check for 15,000 US dollars, of which auditors had established Paige had cheated her out of. Yes. She finally gets her money. Did you say 15 or 50? 15. Okay, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, and it's U.S. money. I'd, I'd be happy with fifteen thousand U.S. dollars. Oh yeah, you know? if if anyone would like to send us fifteen thousand dollars, we'll leave our PayPal in <laughs> the Absolutely. description of this episode. <laughs> Absolutely. In terms of sales, both in her lifetime and since, uh, Lucy is the most successful Canadian author of all time. But because her books were seen as children's books and also as women's books, she's often dismissed by critics who saw Lucy as merely a writer for schoolgirls, not a serious writer. In 1924, the Maple Leaf magazine asked its readers to nominate the 14 greatest living Canadians, and all of the winners were men. Lucy only made the runner-up list to the 14 greatest Canadians, coming in at 16. However, Lucy did make it onto another list, which was the 12 greatest living Canadian women. Hamill, who is a a biographer of her, and I used her book a lot um, throughout writing this episode. She argued that Montgomery was successful at managing her fame, but the media's fixation on presenting her as an idealized woman writer, together with her desire to hide her unhappy home life with her husband, meant that her creation of Anne, whose life was more knowable and easier to relate to, overshadowed both her in her lifetime and after. Um, So for a long time, people, I mean, they know Lucy Maud Montgomery because she's the author, but they don't really know anything about her outside of that. Right. 
1925, we're going back in time a little bit, but Ewan became estranged from his flock when he opposed his church joining the United Church of Canada. And he was involved in an incident when he nearly ran over a Methodist minister who was promoting the union. Okay. <laughs> I think her murder? husband's now trying Attempted to commit murder. murder. Yeah. yeah okay. He's got nothing to lose. He's going to hell. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter. Maybe that's why he was put on her. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Lucy, as the minister's wife, had been a very prominent member of their community and was very much loved by the community as a whole. It's it's usually it's stated that people liked the reverend and they loved Lucy. The community's like, yeah, he's kind of a nutcase, but his wife is cool. (laughs) She's pretty cool. At the same time, she complained in her diary that her husband had a medieval mind when it came to woman, women. A woman is a thing of no importance intellectually, the plaything and the servant of man, and couldn't possibly do anything that would be worthy of real tribute. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. In 19- that. <laughs> in 1926, the family moved uh, because he needs a new church because he almost killed someone with his car. So they wind up in Halton Hills, Ontario. Um, They were there for about eight years. And then Lucy's husband signed himself into a sanatorium in Guelph. Oh, my God. He drove himself insane. (laughs) Yeah, literally. He's Ah. like (laughs) signing himself into a sanatorium um, because that was all the rage in the 1930s. Oh, no. (laughs) After his release... Because now you start to have, like, medical therapy and, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Conversion therapy? Like, electrolysis? Like You would definitely have that. You also, you have pharmaceutical therapy for it as well. Yeah. So when he leaves, he's given what Lucy refers to as a blue pill. I, I don't really know what it would be exactly, but it's supposed to treat her husband's depression. Only when he gets the pills from the pharmacy, they were laced with insecticide by accident. And he almost dies. But he's not dead. What? Yeah. So it's like a pharmacy Uh and they just have shit lying around. And the pharmacist by accident laces his drugs with insecticide. Arsenic. Arsenic to the mouth. (gasps) Arsenic to the mouth. (gasps) Did you read this in advance? (laughs) Maybe. No, I'm just psychic. Yeah. Not like Lucy. Like, for real. <laughs> Premonitions of the future. Premonitions of the past in the future. Because it's already happened, well, but you didn't know about it. Weird. <laughs> so Lucy's husband became notably paranoid after this insta- incident. So now he's like, sure. ca- like, if you didn't think he was paranoid before, now he's majorly paranoid. Yeah. Um. In 1933, uh, Lucy published Pat of the Silver Bush, which is another one of her really popular books. Um, It was more targeted toward young adults rather than children. Unlike Anne, who has this, like, unbeatable sense of optimism and she's such, like, a vibrant character, Pat is more moody. She's noted as being a loner in the book. Also, Pat's best friend, Elizabeth, dies of Spanish flu, which gives the book a bit of a darker tone and also is like, oh, you can see Lucy a little bit in this book. She later wrote about a fan wrote her a letter and was like, I wanted to read one of your books, but it's really sad. Why is it so sad? And she she wrote back. She said, 
I gave Anne my imagination and Emily Starr my knack for scribbling, but the girl who is more myself than any other is Pat of the Silverbush. Not externally, but spiritually, she is I. That's sad, but that's also a, a good way to communicate that with a fan. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm sad I'm not always happy, but like I was able to put pieces of myself into all of my books. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry that this part makes you sad, but that's like, the reality. It's a piece of me, yeah, yeah. It's also like I, I feel like a good way of processing some stuff. Like, I, I think Lucy, if you were to look at her today, you'd probably say like she was probably had some sort of depressive mental health issues. Like, yeah. you know, someone who could probably use modern therapy in their life at the very least. But she also did go through a lot of pretty tough stuff throughout her life oh yeah um absolutely okay anybody anybody who like was of age male or female during one or two of like the world wars like that's heavy shit to like deal with and to have to carry like yeah so yeah and at a time where you don't have conventional therapy like we would have today i have to imagine like being able to write a book and like just write down mm-hmm. those feelings and put those into somebody else at least to like yeah. get them out must have oh, been yeah. really helpful it, it's just a time where you're just surrounded by trauma yeah like you have like people coming back from fighting in a war and especially world war one like nobody knew nobody knew what they were getting themselves into mm-hmm. and then you just have like hordes of men coming back completely changed and to be surrounded by that has got to be awfully heavy too yeah, for sure. And she has children, so yeah. I think that puts a whole yeah. different perspective on it, too. Yeah. In 1935, her husband retires, but I think he was basically forced to retire. Like, sure. It's hard to go back to preaching after you've been in the sanatorium. Um, <laughs> so the family mo- moves to Swansea, Ontario, which is a suburb of Toronto, and she bought a house, which she named Journey's End, uh, which is also depressing (laughs) and uh yeah (laughs) which is situated on riverside drive along the east bank of the hubbard river lucy continued to write and in addition to writing other material returned to anne after a 15-year hiatus so she said she would never go back but 15 years later she's back to writing anne and she's filling in some previously unexplored gaps in the chronology that she had created for the character So during this period of time, she published Anne of the Windy Poplars in 1936 and Anne of Ingleside in 1939. She also wrote Jane of Lantern Hill, which is a non-Anne novel, um, and it was published in 1937. And I will say, like, I feel like maybe I haven't uh, really emphasized how well-known she is, but in 1935, she's made an order of the British Empire. Um, so like King George V is like, Lucy Ma Montgomery, you are part of the Order of the British Empire, which is like the Order oh, of Canada yeah. today. And the ceremony took place in Rideau Hall in Ottawa. So she's like with the Governor General and they conduct this whole ceremony for her. Um, she's given a special medal, which she could only wear in public in the presence of the king or one of his representatives. Her husband did not attend the ceremony, uh, but Lucy was yeah. by all accounts greatly honored to be appointed to the Screw order. Through that guy. <laughs> yeah, no, she's a huge deal, especially as someone who's like worked 
like, and you, I'm sure as well, but like working in tourism and service, um, there are a lot of people who come and they're in Nova Scotia as a means to get to PEI because they want to go see like Anne of Green Gables house. Yeah. Uh, especially a lot from overseas. It's really, really a, a shtick like to go to PEI to, to see. And PEI is, I mean, we both live in fairly touristy Nova Scotian slash Canadian towns and PEI is a province yes but it's its own beast with tourism like it's yeah crazy PEI PEI has never thrived off anything other than tourism and really. potatoes and potatoes yeah like the whole island is one beach basically so it's yeah. it's a beautiful place and yeah and and Anne of Green Gables puts it on the map for a lot of people like that's that's the the pop culture connection to prince edward island and i guess the big thing that surprised me was like i never knew that she was so popular in her own time like i guess i kind of thought like maybe she had like small canadian success during her life but then like when she died and you know her the rights to her books come up and they get reprinted all the time that's when people really started to recognize and appreciate the books but like no from the jump people they don't necessarily put her on the caliber of male contemporaries of hers but everybody knows who Lucy Bob Montgomery is and everybody knows who Anne of Green Gable is um so that was interesting I didn't really know that before this no and just to put it into perspective for people So Ontario in distance to get from like point to point, it's 1,568 kilometers. It's big to get like PEI is 280 kilometers. (laughs) Yeah, you could drive the length of the island in people. Oh, in in less than. Yeah, people people bike it. Yeah. Like on a bicycle. Like circumnavigate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like PEI is small for any of our, yeah, for any of our non-Canadian and, and like any of our, our fans who aren't on the East Coast, because mm-hmm. I think you don't really understand quite how small PEI is yeah. until you like compare it against something else. Yeah, like I, I visited it for the first time this summer. Like I've lived in the Maritimes my whole life and it was the first time That's I'd crazy. gone there on vacation. And I went there and we were like looking at the map and I was like, oh my gosh, that's kind of far away. Like, are you sure we can get there? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> it'll be like 45 minutes at most by car. I was like, like oh, okay, maybe. cool. <laughs> yeah, it puts things kind of into perspective. And, and PEI is just, yeah, a giant tourist, tourism attraction. Tourism yeah. PEI is huge. Writing kept up Lucy's spirits as she battled depression, and at this point, she's often on pharmaceutical therapies for depression as well. Um, But in public, she presented a happy, smiling face, giving speeches to various professional groups all over Canada um, at the Toronto Book Fair held on November 9th, 1936, to promote Canadian literature. Lucy met the pseudo-Ojibwe author and environmentalist, Grail. (laughs) No way. They Pseudo met. Ojibwe? Pseudo Ojibwe? Pseudo Ojibwe. <laughs> they know. That kills me. I love that they've crossed, like, we have a Heritage Minute connection. Oh my God. Like, Crossing a like, paths. Yeah. Like, they were there. Yeah. 
Um, during her speech to the assembled authors, Lucy spoke of hearing an owl's laughter in Leaksdale, calling Grey Owl to jump up and interrupt her, saying, You are the first white person I have ever met who has heard an owl's laughter. I thought nobody but Indians ever heard it. We hear it often because we are a silent race. My full name is Laughing Grey Owl. It's like, You okay, are white. Archie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, okay, Archibald. Okay. <laughs> Sit down, <laughs> please. Grey Owl's remark made the front page of the Toronto Mail and Empire newspaper the next day. Oh, my God. Men stealing all the attention. Ugh. Lucy described Grey Owl in her diary. Grey Owl was looking quite the Indian of romance. Which, also, sorry for using that word, but these are yeah. quotes. These are all quotes. Um, these are direct quotes from history. Yes. With long black braids of hair, his feather headdress, and a genuine scalping knife. At least he told us it was genuine, which she I knows. love because it sounds like she's like, I don't trust this guy. Yeah, Lucy knows. <laughs> um, however, Lucy did like Grey Owl's speech the same evening, stating Canada's greatest asset is her forest lands and saying that most Canadians were too proud of the skyscrapers on Young Street rather than the natural resources we are destroying as fast as we can. After Grey Owl's death in 1938 and the revelation that the supposed Ojibwe was actually the Englishman Archie Bellini, Lucy stated that though Bellini lied about being an Ojibwe, his concern for the environment, nature, and animals were real. And for this reason, Grey Owl's message was worth cherishing. Okay. So at the following year's book fair, so she's back at the Toronto Book Fair again. Um, okay. <laughs> They were calling for Canadian writers to write more stories about Canada, arguing Canadians had great stories worth writing. Despite her efforts to raise the profile of a Canadian literature through the Canadian Authors Association, the male avant-garde of Canadian literature complained about the mostly female membership of the CAA, whom they felt had overly glorified someone like Lucy, who was not a serious writer. Ugh. Dicks. Stupid. Assholes. All of them. Also, during this period of time, uh, Lucy is increasingly becoming addicted to um, bromides and barbiturates that doctors oh, nice. are just like doling out to her to treat her depression. Nice. Also, another area where sexism is a huge influence because male doctors are like, get out of my face, just have some barbiturates. Yep. And then you have a bunch of women who are addicted to drugs. Great. Yep. And then to top it all okay. off, the Second World War breaks out and Lucy does not handle this well. I um, am not surprised. For so. her, it's like a nightmare all over again because she's been through it once. And now her sons are of oh. serving age. So she's just constantly terrified that they're going to reinstate conscription. Oh, that's awful. She says, so in 1941, she says, this past year has just been one constant blow up for me. Yeah. My oldest son has made a mess of his life and his wife has left him. My husband's nerves are even worse than mine. I have kept the nature of his attacks from you for over 20 years, but they have broken me at last. I could not go out to select a book for you this year. So she's, this is in a letter to a friend. Um, Pardon me. I could not even write this if I had not been hypodermic. 
The war situation kills me along with many other things. I expect conscription will come in and they will take my second son and I will give up all effort to recover because I shall have nothing to live for. Oh my gosh. That's so sad. Thankfully for Lucy, we don't get conscription in the Second World War. Um, Yeah. They introduce conscription under the National Resources Mobilization Act, but it has this huge caveat that it would only ever to be to defend North America. So okay. so long as there's never an invasion of North America, there would never be conscription of Canadian soldiers. And throughout the Second right. World War, that doesn't happen. You do have Pearl Harbor, but Canadian troops are never deployed there. So even of this, she's like majorly skeptical. Um, she's like, it will come. It's going to happen. She's just waiting for them to change the rules, basically. Yeah. And so she's just, it's just anxiety constantly. That's a hard way to live. Yeah. On April 24th, 1942, Lucy was found dead in her home in Toronto. So she passes away in 1942. The primary cause of death on her birth certificate is coronary thrombrosis. However, in September of 2008, her granddaughter, Kate McDonald Butler, uh, or Butler, sorry, revealed that it's likely like she's like she suffered from depression and it is possible that she killed herself through a drug overdose um which i think obviously they wouldn't say that at the time because there's a lot of moral things caught up with that and for a lot of people it mean you would not go to heaven also lucy was an incredibly christian person so yeah it's possible that you know like she didn't see suicide as something that she would be able to do So it's not confirmed, but her granddaughter is sort of like, it's kind of just been known in the family that that's probably what happened. Oh, that's so sad. Now, there is a note that's found on her bed that a lot of people have read as a suicide note. Okay. Um, But there is an alternative explanation to it, um, which is written in Mary Rubio's biography of Lucy Ma Montgomery. Um, And she suggests that... It may have been intended as part of her journal entry, which a journal which is now lost. Like, we, I don't think they have the journal for that specific time period. Okay. So she says it's it's not like, oh, there was a note on the bed. It has to be a suicide. She's like, there are sure. other explanations. This woman was a prolific writer. She wrote all the time. She also writes yeah. like fairly depressive things a lot. So yeah. it's important not to read into it too much. But right. such, is, such is life. In the last year of her life, she completed what was intended to be the ninth Anne book, um, which was entitled The Blythes Are Quoted. It included 15 short stories, many of which were previously published, that she revised to include Anne and her family as mainly peripheral characters. It also included 41 poems that she attributed to Anne and her son Walter, who died as a soldier in the Great War and vignettes featuring the Blythe family members discussing the poems. That is one thing that's with Anne as well, is that Anne's son passes away in the First World War, and that's like a major thing that Lucy puts in her life. Like, you can see how Lucy, like, works through anxieties and fears through a lot of her characters. Yeah. The book was delivered to Montgomery's publisher on the day of her death, but for whatever reason, the publisher declined to issue the book at the time. It's thought of that because she writes so negatively about the First World War that it would not have been suitable to publish 
during the Second World War when you want really high fervor for the war and support. An abridged version of this book, um, which was shortened and reorganized and omitted a lot of the poems, was published as a collection of short stories called The Road to Yesterday uh, in 1974, 30 years after the original work was submitted. A complete edition of The Blythes Are Quoted was finally published in 2009. So it's not until 2009 you get like the complete book as it was written. That's crazy. During her lifetime, Lucy had published 20 novels, over 500 short stories, an autobiography, and a book of poetry. Aware of her fame, by 1920, Lucy had started editing and recopying her journals, presenting her life as she wanted it to be remembered, which is nuts. That's crazy. I know. Well, it's clearly she's like a paranoid, anxious person. But she's like, yeah. I'm famous enough that people are eventually going to read these diaries. So yeah. I have to rewrite them. But she also recopies them. It's like she wants people to read them. But she wants them to right. read them in a very specific way. Right. Which is very interesting. Um, that's a, yeah, that's, that should be unpacked at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and in doing so, there's certain episodes of her life which are basically omitted from all of her journals. Or they were changed significantly. Okay. Um, I don't know how much of like the original diaries they have. Like, right. this is the nineteen. This is the one for nineteen oh eight, and we know it was actually written in nineteen oh eight. Versus, she copied sure. it and rewrote it later on. Um, yeah. But yeah, it would be really interesting to compare and like see the two. It's like a like a detective mystery. Yeah. I want to no, know. Definitely. But anyways, that's the life of Lucy Maud Montgomery. It's the um, life and times of Lucy Maud. It's not exactly cheery. But no, I, I wouldn't use that word. <laughs> it's um, very honest, I think. It's honest and it's, yeah. it's informative. And I, I really like as someone who's like read in a few cables, I've been to the house like as a child. Yeah, that's not that's not what I thought. It's so different from how everyone wanted to portray her her whole life, yeah. which you are already living in a fairly repressive time. Yeah. And then on top of all that, you're actually quite well known and you can't tell anyone how you really feel. It's just sad, but. It's really sad. She fueled a lot of that emotional energy into over 500 short stories. She's prolific. Well, thank you. That was a good one. That was a good one. Sad. 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 Sorry sorry to start off your year with a bit of a gray story, but. But uh, no, she's. I'm glad that we did this one. She's an important one to cover. But yeah, didn't know her life was quite so depressing. Yeah, and it's, it's, she's one of the Heritage Minute figures that I think has the most, like, legacy. It's surprising that there wasn't a Heritage Minute about her until the, like, more recent batches of them. Right. Like, she's almost not taken seriously until recently. And I think a lot of that's changed because of, University of Prince Edward Island like focuses a lot on her and their literature studies and the rise of feminist literature and and literary studies have really refocused just in general yeah yeah like her books are actually taken seriously and they're studied in university courses for lots of different reasons like just because a book is accessible doesn't mean it's not significant or important or a a great piece of literature i did a an english course that was atlantic canadian uh works basically and uh no lucy montgomery was a huge part of that yeah um yeah incredibly 
considered and and as she should be an incredibly prolific Canadian, Atlantic Canadian. Well, thank you everyone for listening to another episode of the Minute Women podcast, the conclusion to the life and times of Lucy Maud Montgomery. As we've stated, not exactly a super cheerful one to come back to, but a a very good episode nonetheless, one that I very enjoyed learning about, and I hope you do too. Uh, You can find uh, all of our episodes and the sources that Grace uses, as well as links to our merch um, and our social media platforms at www.minutewomenpodcast.ca. And make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on whatever platform you use. Make sure you rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. If you're a Spotify user, you can go rate and review the podcast now. And you can tune in next Wednesday for a brand new episode. Yeah, we'll be there with you then. (laughs) We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.